right. Welcome, guys. My name is Randy Bond, and uh, we're going to talk about coming into full-time missions mid-career, or even later for some of us, uh, the barrier to that, um, and how God can miraculously overcome those barriers. I was at a meeting in August with someone else who was here, and they said that they had heard it said that if you don't get called to missions early in life, you're not called. And I'll tell you that all of us are testimonies to that's not true. Um, uh, many of us may have dabbled, including me, with missions early in life, but it wasn't a call until God had matured um, me and my skill set and my marriage. Relative. So, hmm? you relatively, yeah, on a, on, a, on a relative scale. Yeah, you can tell some of these people know me. Um, and we'll get to each of our stories um, in a little bit, and then we'll have time to answer some questions in a structured way and then take questions from all of you. Um, this is just uh, to say we were all young once, um, and God does engage us in missions at different times in life. Uh, during our time here, we're going to talk about nine particular issues and then any issues you want to bring up after that. The question of um, abandoning people versus leaving them well, that, which is always a barrier to some of us leaving. Are we healthy enough to go? Who will take care of my aging parents? What happens if something happens to my parents while I'm abroad? Will I have to come back? Am I committing too much to do that? Um, can I be a grandparent? Or will my kids be okay without me? Um, uh, is, am I abandoning kids at the time of life they need guidance? Or are they kicking me out? Um, can I be a grandparent from abroad? Or do I have to quit when my kids start having kids? Um, do I know enough to be able to work in tropical medicine or in a low-resource environment? Will I try and overdo it? Will I embarrass myself as a care provider? Um, can I learn a language? Do I have to learn a language? Can I go to an Anglophone country? Um, do I, can I afford to go? Um, I have, my, my life is almost over. What happens if I have to come back? I don't have enough money to go back to work and retire for a longer period of time. What will happen to me? Um, and then what about support raising? What's going to happen if I talk to my friends about money? They all think that I'm successful and rich, and why would they give any money to me? So we'll come back to those questions, but I'm going to introduce the panel, and then they're going to each tell you their stories. Um, I'll t I'm Randy Bond. My wife, Carolyn, has shown. We were in Burundi with Surge for six years after a couple of years uh, in Malawi in France and some time earlier in our life in Kenya. Um, you see Tim and Kathy Rice um, under International Ministries in Vanga, the DRC. Um, Dave, without Margie Burgess, um, worked with Cure in Malawi. Margie uh, ran the clinic. Is that fair enough to say? She, she was the hospital administrator. Yep. Um, uh, Mark and Janet um, are in Ethiopia under Sim, um, and they'll talk about what they're doing. And Dwayne and Joanne, who are not pictured, and which is why we're not doing this live and online, are somewhere in the mountains of South Asia. So um, let's start with uh, Joanne. You want to introduce you and Mark, your lives? Dwayne and Joanne? Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah, this <laughs> <laughs> so I'm Joe Joanne, and this is uh, Duane, and uh, we were married in 1992, and um, my friends gave me a baby shower, or a, a wedding shower, and they gave me a blanket, and they said, we know that you are not going to stay in this area, you are going to go, you're going to be all over the world, the two of you, and they gave me this blanket that I was to take everywhere with me. So we knew that we wanted to travel we knew that we wanted to do it with purpose, um, a bigger purpose than ourselves, even when we got married and when our children were small. But we weren't ready. And um, I remember asking uh, workers about how, how to know when we were ready, when we would, what would that call feel like. And we just weren't feeling what they said we would feel. Um, we lived in... Uh, after residency, Hawaii, New Zealand, uh, Australia, uh, came back to Colorado to take care of um, a sick father. And um, that kind of lasted for 10 years, at which point I was finishing my 
um, degree, my nursing degrees. And then all of a sudden it was like, wow, I think it's time to go. Um, and so we, um, I felt like we were asking for so many years, when, God, when are we supposed to go? And, and then when it came, it was like, yeah, yeah, this is the time. And, um, and everything just kind of fell into place after that. So, who's next? You can give it to Dave. Yeah, the, I'm Dave Burgess. Um, I'm an orthopedic surgeon. Um, yeah, our story was actually very different. It, it, I think you'll find that all of our stories are, are very different. Um, my wife grew up on the mission field uh, in the Philippines. Her parents were IMB missionaries there, church planters in Mindanao for about 35 years. And so missions... Once we got married, just it was almost an assumption that we were going to become missionaries, and so we went to the uh, so after my orthopedic surgery residency, we moved to the Philippines where I was at Clark Air Base, and we thought this is a natural introduction for missions, and so we were we were so excited about about doing that, and then in one of the very few times that we have felt the Lord's really talking to us distinctly was. There was a distinct call that both of us sense of the Lord saying, you are not going on missions. And I want you to stay back and support missions, but go into private practice. And we both really did not like that. Uh, we wanted to go on the mission field. Um, but we felt it was important to be obedient. And so after we had questioned that and talked to pastors and prayed and prayed and prayed, we uh, we we did go ahead and go into private practice um, where we went into private practice. So after we got out of the military, we uh, moved to Virginia, and a wonderful place in the Shenandoah Valley in Virginia, practiced in a small town. I'm practiced in a private practice, non-academic sort of community hospital uh, for about 25 years. And just as surprising as it was for the Lord to call us away from missions, um, it was about a little over 10 years ago, both of us within a day or two of each other felt the Lord distinctly telling us to do missions. Yep. Um, I need to remind people that because of the security issues, don't take any pictures at all while we're in here. Thanks. Okay. Thanks a lot. And, um, and so just as surprising, the Lord told us at this point, you know, what we heard was do something different. Because uh, we couldn't imagine the Lord was going to call us into missions being old. <laughs> and so, uh, I'm not old, by the way. Um, but, the, but, you know, we distinctly felt that. And it was a, it was a confusing time um, because, like, it made no sense. I was, I, I was thrilled with my practice. I loved my practice. I loved my patients. I loved my hospital. I, lo- I mean, there was nothing I didn't love. I felt like I was at the top of my skills, my career, everything. And I just, and I loved it. And our kids were growing up. And so it, it was, we were at a great place. And so we're like, Lord, why would you call us from this? Um, but we followed into that and that, and we went through, we actually loved it so much that once we decided we were going to leave my practice, we gave my practice two years notice. Um, I don't want you to think of that as the norm. Okay. You do not have to give your practice two years notice. Um, but we really prayed about it, and then once we got identified, we, we went out with SIM, um, and then I worked at a cure hospital uh, in, in Malawi as an orthopedic surgeon. And so it was, a, it was a great experience. We've loved being on the mission field. As much as I loved where we practiced in the States, by far our most rewarding time has, has been our time in missions. Uh, and I, we served in, in Malawi, so... Do you want to tell what you did before? You should mention about going back to school. Oh, well, so, um, all right. So, Dwayne is a general practitioner, family practice doctor, and he's, you know, since 1999. Um, but I spent most of my time raising kids, and we had one day where he came home from work and said, I'm going to Kenya. I'm going to go on a medical mission trip. And I said, oh, I want to go. And he said, nope. You're not medical. I'm like, I was an athletic trainer. Nope. I'll roll bandages. Nope. So I went and I looked, 
online, and I said, who gets to do medical missions? RN, MD, maybe PA, maybe NP. And I thought about being a nurse. I didn't say a word, not to you, not even to him. And within that, the next week, three different people came up to me out of the blue and said, have you ever thought about being a nurse? I was like, okay, God, what are you doing? So I started nursing school. So uh, my kids were in high school, and I asked God to work out the schedule, and he did. My busiest times, they were taken care of. Um, it was really his hand was on it the whole way and went all the way to my master's, so nurse practitioner. So, yeah, I'd like to share about my journey um, that led us to Vanga at the ripe age of 56. Um, my wife and I, Kathy, grew up in a small town in Oregon, and we both as teenagers felt a call to medical missions. But um, Kathy went to nursing school. I went to medical school in Portland. And then I moved um, in 19, um, 1985 to St. Louis and uh, started an internal medicine pediatric residency program, uh, finished in 1990, and at that point, our mission board said, you need to get a little experience under your belt before you go. Um, much to our surprise, God knew that we needed 25 years worth of additional experience as we lived and worked with the poor in the inner city. So during that season, I was on the faculty um, teaching MedPeds residents, but also we worked with our church to um, work with uh, single moms in the inner city and also then began to work with immigrants and refugees that were part of our church. Um, we had uh, Burmese, uh, Albanians, Nepali, Hispanic, and, and yes, we even had Congolese. And so that's where the change happened in our path towards Vanga, because uh, since 2000, our church began to have a number of Congolese immigrants and refugees uh, become part of the church. And these uh, Congolese brothers and sisters began to tell of the need in their country, and our church responded. Um, and they sent resources, but not just money. One of the principles of working with the poor is the brokenness of poverty is not just a lack of finances, but it's a brokenness in relationships. And so our church said, how do we build relationships with people that are on the other side of the Atlantic? And so one of the things that we do is we took some short-term trips, or our church did. And in a trip our pastor took in 2005, he brought back a photo of a kid with severe spinal scoliosis. His spine was an S. He had uh, about uh, lost about 70% of his lung capacity. And so Pierre, this 10-year-old kid, needed medical care. And um, our pastor gave me a, this picture. And I'm not a surgeon. I'm not an orthopedist. But... Uh, and, and I wanted clarity. I didn't know how to raise money uh, to support this kid or how to get him care. Uh, but really, instead of clarity, God wanted to give me courage. He wanted to give me courage to say, well, let me ask somebody um, if they can help. And the orthopedist uh, at our pediatric hospital said, sure, I'd love to help this kid. And so he said yes. Miraculously, the hospital said, yes, we'll do this for free. The State Department said, yes, he can come. The church members uh, hosted him. And so we began to build relationships with him, um, but also strengthen our relationship with the Congolese. After corrective surgery, uh, Pierre gained five and a half inches, um, and we began to make arrangements for him to return back to Congo, where he lived with his grandmother. He was an orphan. Um, what I didn't want was for Pierre to return to the DRC and die of some common, easily treatable ailment. You know, it, uh, things like 
treating malaria only costs $3. Or, you know, oral rehydration solution, you know, 10 cents. But what he needed was a place for him to get care. And so I started asking our Congolese and our pastor, well, where do they get care and how do they do that? And, and our pastor Barry said, Tim, why don't you just come with us? And it's like, okay, again, I need clarity. How do I do anything about the terrible health infrastructure in Congo? Well, it's not the whole infrastructure that I needed to deal with. God gave me the courage to say, I can look with one group of pastors in their neighborhood, where do they have health care? How can I help this one kid get health care? And so, okay, so I went. Um, with, with God's help, I went to, um, to Kinshasa, Congo, um, and began to build relationships and look for opportunities. And that was the first trip in 2006, and uh, we began to take yearly trips. Um, and, but it wasn't until 2012 where we, my wife and I uh, made a trip uh, to Vanga Hospital, um, and when we arrived there, after the first day, we saw this was a teaching institution with a wonderful group of family practice residents, a nursing school, uh, really focused on teaching. And this was exactly what God had prepared for us all those years to do as a teaching nurse, as a, a faculty teacher. And so, um, you know, right now we're just working there and recruiting to for people to come, and that's how God led us at, at that point in our career to move to, to Vanga. Mark? My name is Mark Tapazian, and uh, my wife Janet, I wish she was here. She's not, because uh, she's a teacher, and school is in session. Um, when we were first married in 1988, we and I had just finished my internal medicine residency, we spent a year in Liberia, West Africa, with a mission organization called SIM, and we went to work at a mission station there where they really needed a doctor, but what they really needed was my wife because the mission school needed a middle school science teacher. So they said, we need Janet, and yeah, we'll take Mark. And so we moved there for a year. I'm, I had my GI fellowship scheduled to start a year later, uh, and... Uh, having just finished my internal medicine residency. And so it was a gap year for us. Once I got there, most of the other doctors had to leave for one reason or another. And so our year there was, for me, medically, a fantastic experience. Out of necessity, I practiced far beyond internal medicine, and that was uh, very rewarding for me and helped a lot of people. Um, my wife really engaged with the school and with teaching, um, but it was also a time of tremendous need and difficulty in Liberia. And, you know, there was an endless stream of people coming to see us asking for things, mainly asking for money, for connections, for flights, to help me get out, etc. And, you know, the two bad responses to that are first to be the, the white knight on a shining horse riding in to fix everything in somebody's life. But the other response, which was my response, was, whoa, way too much need. I cannot handle all this. I don't have the resources for this endless line of people. And I just shut them all down. And we left Liberia, and I had zero heart for the people there. So really, I would say now, the year was a failure for me as an individual. Um, and my wife left with a more balanced view, I would say. Um, I uh, went into academic medicine and had a career in academic medicine in the U.S., and uh, did get, uh, would go back and forth predominantly to Africa uh, four to six weeks a year, mainly around teaching in residency programs, both in mission hospitals and in big government secular hospitals, and helping with research and capacity building in my field. And I really enjoyed that, enjoyed interacting with colleagues in different places. Um, and... Um, for various reasons, our, our, we have my, Jan and I have three daughters. Uh, they finished college, and uh, they were getting into an independent stage of life. And for various reasons, both of us start to feel the nudge to just sort of move on to something else. You know, half of my colleagues in my own therapeutic endoscopy group at our institution, I had trained half of them, 
And, you know, I felt like I'm not so needed here anymore. And um, my idea was, well, let's just start to shift into, you know, it's four weeks a year now in Africa. Why don't we shift it to eight and then 12? And maybe we'll end up spending five or six months a year in Africa back and forth. And Janice saying, well, that might work for you, but no one's going to want me to come and teach a month at a time and leave. So, you know, what about that? And so I said, yeah, okay, let's just move. And uh, we thought it would be super easy because we had connections. And there's places we'd been visiting for 20 years in Africa, and none of them were the right place, fascinatingly. And we got a little frustrated, you know, uh, well, What's going on here and why, why our doors seem to be closed when we seem to be ready to go? And, and uh, we got wise, just wise counsel to wait and to pray. And God used those, that, those years, especially in my life. My wife was ready, but my self-identity was way too rooted in my professional identity. And looking back, I can say it's a good thing we didn't go at the start because um, – if you're going to do this, you need to know yourself primarily as a child of God, and you need to really know yourself that way. And I didn't, I have to say, not in my heart. But that came. That's another story about how that came. And so uh, finally we we visited Ethiopia, which we had never been to, on the advice of some friends at SIM. And uh, it was clear to us on the plane going home, it's like we looked at each other and said, this is it. So uh, we're now in our fourth year in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. My wife teaches middle school at an international Christian school. It's like deja vu. And I uh, work in capacity building in my field. It's a country of, we're in a country of 110 million people. There's 30 gastroenterologists. I mean, in my little town in the Midwest, there's 80 gastroenterologists. So, you know. Um, and uh, my colleagues there, I work in big dysfunctional government hospitals, which is what all African government hospitals are that I've ever been in. And my job is not to fix their system. It's to get to know my colleagues and find out where they want to go, see how I can help them out. It's a blast. I love it. And God kind of prepared me to do this because I've been in medical education and, and, in, and in my own niche in our field for a long time. And you might think, well, I'm super specialized. What place is there for me? There's always a place, let me tell you, whatever you do. Uh, and, uh, and then I do a thing called saline process, which is teaching healthcare professionals how to integrate faith into practice. And in Addis Ababa, in a big government hospital, it's worse than here. Everyone's wary about religion. There's a lot of religious tension in the country. And we teach medical students how to, to – integrate faith into their practice in a way nobody can object to, and exciting things are happening there in the, in, in the medical community starting to impact patients for Jesus in secular settings. So, so we're blessed. I think I took more than five minutes. I will keep my remarks short. Um, back to my... I, too, uh, had an experience early on thinking missions might be the thing, a gap year after three years after my residency. My wife taught um, a team of uh, kids on the field, and I took the place of a solo doctor in rural Kenya where there was me and 50,000 people. So even though I was trained as a pediatrician, I was doing everything except surgery. Um, and I learned at the end of that 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 wasn't the life for me that um, God made me to know and understand and inquire and be an academician and understand things better, called me back to pursue that. I ended up with four boards. That's another story everybody jokes about. But um, so at, after a while, I was drawn back into missions. I was on all these committees and stuff, and the head of Surge was a friend of mine, and he said, would you come on our board? So I was on the board of Surge, and I began to visit things and see people at Surge, Reopened my eyes to things about that time my kids were graduating. And as I got to know missionaries, I got to think, you know, my retirement is already way better than theirs is ever going to be. Um, and um, the people had been on the field since they were like 22 or something. And that I had something to offer now after 30 years, 25 years of academic medicine to teach rather than simply to 
give care in a rural area. So I started to have the vision of, you know, teach a man to fish or feed him, give a man a fish, you feed him for a day, teach a man to fish, you feed for the rest of his life. So I, I was looking for the opportunity. I said to my wife, what do you think about um, going back and doing something this? And she said, you know, as our children are now in college, what do you think we should go back? She goes, there needs to be more of a we after all those years of uh, child rearing before we go back anywhere. So uh, we did, mark, I think everybody up here knows about Sonship, and so we spent some more time in Sonship again to refocus our lives and relook at our lives. Um, and by the time we were ready to go in 2010 or thinking about it and announcing to my hospital in 2009 that whatever's going, God's calling me to be away from here in two years, they're like, what? You're young. But... Um, so we went first to start a program for them in Malawi because no mission agency had a place for an academic like me. Um, and then we created a place um, in Burundi uh, working with a university that had some things. And suddenly everything God had done to prepare me as an academician came up when they asked me to be the dean of the medical school. So here I was, not ready for that, but all my skill set, that I had spent all these years developing was suddenly used where I was by wanting to be there to teach uh, in medicine generally. So God, God showed himself um, to have gone way before us in all that. So we talked about our stories. Now let me introduce some questions about um, what we're going to do. Um, questions you see here. I'm going to pitch them to certain people who are ready for them, and each of these are barriers for all of us, and you can see how it worked into our lives to, um, to work with that. So uh, the first question is, how can we leave a good work that we're already doing that's highly successful and our patients love us, um, and, and do what God has called us to do? And I, I asked specifically Dave and Dwayne to sort of address that. Um, yeah, I think that that was that was a real issue I had. Um, you know, is how do we? Number one, you know, we feel like we're important people, and each of you who are practicing are are important people where you are. Uh, you know, you'll you're. To be honest, you probably, if you leave, you're probably going to leave a hole that's greater than what you imagine, because uh, your influence as as a practitioner, but also as a as a believer, your your impact as a person on the people around you is is probably is larger than you ever imagined. And there are several things that happened when we left that really shocked us uh, about, we, frankly, we had no clue that we had the impact on people that we did. Um, but it was one of the things that was interesting was we had some people also in our community who, especially some of the nurses in the hospital, were just really angry that we were leaving. Uh, saying, you know, you're, you know, we've brought our kids to you. We've been doing these things. Again, well, I was in a fairly small community, and they were very upset. But after, one, and I always thought it was funny. The thing, I, I explained it all. I used all the words I could use to describe the benefit we were going to try to provide in, in Malawi as compared to what we would provide in, in Virginia. There's a little thing called World Mapper that shows you know, the needs of the country and it expands the country and it shrinks the country depending on needs and, and how those are filled. And I showed that picture to her. So this one person in particular, and she was our biggest critic. She looked at it and she said, I get it. And she then became our, like our cheerleader around the hospital for why we needed to leave. And all these other people, she was going up and explaining this to her. And so I think just, you know, being able to, to involve your colleagues um, in, in what you're doing and, and why you're doing it, um, it I, think it's, I think it's been interesting just listening to the stories that I had not heard. It really impacted me that each person here was not just a, an individual decision. Um, you know, this is something that if you're married, um, you need to involve, you know, you, this is something you do with your spouse. Uh, if you're single, you do it, you know, with your family. I mean, this is a decision you, you know, these aren't individual decisions we make. Uh, but to be able to communicate that well, and, then I, th and I love how, how it's been stated a couple of times about 
I think it's really important to understand that your identity is in Christ. Um, is to is to really try to understand that that your role, that your real identity, is is in Christ, and it's and to try to understand that you know as much as we love our professions, and we should. I think it's completely appropriate to. I mean, I love being an orthopedic surgeon, and I always have. And yet, if that's what my value is in, when I get when I got to Malawi, I would have been crushed, um, as so many people talk about. And so it's so helpful to know. You know, we talk about sonship, and just even just intrinsically to understand that our identity is is not in our profession, um, but it, but how you how we treat people now. And how we're dealing with cross-cultural issues where we are now is really important because that doesn't just start when you get to the mission field. Yeah. Yeah. As far as leaving well is concerned, I've always tried to not run away from anything, but always be going to something. And um, so when when we made the announcement to our you know patients and family, uh, colleagues, uh, there, there was definitely some resentment. Um, one of uh, the more glaring examples of that was a, a very wealthy individual um, who we had actually kind of thought, well, he might be a good person to support us. Um, but he was very, very angry um, and actually took me to breakfast one morning and, and pretty well dressed me down right there in the in the restaurant and it's like wow I did not see that coming um, and there there were other situations somewhat like that but so often when when you could communicate to them what the bigger picture was um, then you could see that light bulb go off and go oh okay so that's what's going on and instead of people having this element of resentment that I was, quote, retiring. And the first time I heard that, I was like, no, 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 I'm not retiring. This is is a retread. Um, Once they got that, once they figured out that, you know, I was going off to do, or we were going off to do something much more than just go play golf down by the seashore somewhere, then they could handle that. And some of the, as, as you put it, some of our biggest critics became some of our biggest supporters. Um, and it, now it's fun to communicate with them and say, hey, this is what's going on. These are the weird things that we're dealing with now. And uh, it's, it's fun. Joanne, you had some issues with health. And most of us were pretty healthy healthy enough at whatever age we were to go at that time, but there was an issue for you. Yeah, so um, at this point I've now had 14 melanomas. (laughs) And um, I was having to see my oncologist, a dermatologist, every six months. Um, So basically I had appointments if I saw each of them every six months, I saw them, you know, it was like every four months, whatever. But I was like, how am I going to leave? How, how do I leave that support that I have where someone's checking my skin and, and they're, they're making sure that we don't get another one? And even with all that surveillance, I would have another one. And that was scary. Um, but they really slowed down in the last ten years. And my oncologist, I talked to him, and he was like, you know, I think we can do this. Uh, Dwayne went to a dermatology conference and got a dermoscope and learned really what my problem spots are. He's taken off many of my moles. We didn't know where we were going to get the pathology, but we figured that out now. Um, But I haven't had anything to take off in the last few years. Hmm. I have an appointment next Thursday with my oncologist, but Dwayne's been watching, and we're not expecting anything. So God has been good, and maybe that's why it took so long. Maybe he waited until he could, he could take care of this problem for me. I'm going to go two for one before I pass it to Kathy. Um, my wife also has innumerable skin cancers. The, when she would see her dermatologist, she would get 100 precancerous things burned off every six months. So um, 
one of the things that we did was we made a plan with our mission agency that we would come back every six months so that she could be seen because that's the issue of our life and where it was. On top of that, uh, going to the next one, my parents were definitely against uh, us going. They're like, they weren't too old. They weren't too decrepit. Um, they were living alone and independently, but they didn't like the fact that we were going to be so far away. And they looked at us as the likely caregivers for them if anything happened. A year and a half into our time in Malawi, my stepfather died, leaving my mother with early dementia alone. So that created a question for us. And, and you know, again, you know, knowing you, you can't leave not knowing your parents are old. Um, it's just sort of a given. Um, but we worked um, in a situation to put my mother in uh, assisted living next to my now adult son, who was 28 or so at the time. Um, and that worked as a solution for us to work and, and care. But I, I don't know that everybody has happy parents when they're leaving in a time of crisis. Um, Kathy, you had something about parents too? So, so we were, I was 55 when we went to the mission field for the first time. We've been there seven years now. And both of us have older parents. And like um, Randall, we have worked it out so that we are coming home every six months. And honestly, um, that's we see our parents more frequently now than we did when we just lived in St. Louis and went home for the holidays or whatever. So that's one way that um, you can address the issue of aging parents is to work with your sending agency to come closer. The other thing is that we've just seen God... Um, he doesn't guarantee this, but he has put us um, when we were needed at our parents' home. When Tim's dad died, um, Tim had just been there the week before and had seen him. And my bonus dad <clears throat> needed a lot of care at the end of his life. But that we happened to be home for six months for COVID. And we were able um, – I had been trying to get a hold of my mom to tell her that you know, she had been in a dilemma. Do I – do I put him in a rehab facility or what do I do and, um, after a leg amputation? And um, she came home on her way to putting him into a rehab facility and picked up a message that said, Mom, I will be there tomorrow morning. Don't do anything until I get there. And so, um, so I got there the next day, and we were able to keep him home so that all of his children and all – us during that COVID period could visit him and um, and he could be surrounded by family during his last days. And so I don't know. I, I just know that God is trustworthy and he is a good God. And though he doesn't guarantee all these things, in our lives it has happened that we have been able to be with our parents in their times of need. And I just think that that is a comforting reassurance as we followed him in obedience. Um yeah, so all of us had to – I think all of us left when our children were just sort of entering life themselves, and that's a huge fear is will my children succeed, fail, or will I not be there when they need me? And I think Mark, you had something to say about that. Yeah, so as I mentioned, Jan and I were with SIM for a year in the 1980s. So when we approached them again, we said – we got out our old member cards <laughs> – and we said, we're members, right? They said, uh-uh, we're vetting you again. And uh, so, and by the way, I would recommend you join a mission organization. That's another thing. But, but, but we went through this extensive psychological evaluation, as they do with all of their mission candidates. And, and at the end, Jan and I met with a psychologist, and he said to me, he said to us, you know, we passed. We don't know what they missed. But, but uh, he, he said... You realize that by moving to Ethiopia, you're giving up influence in your daughter's lives. And that just hit me out of, like, from left field. That had not even occurred to me. It occurred to my wife, I think, but not to me. And so that was a very helpful comment because um, we became very intentional. And we were the sort of parents who never called our kids when they were in college, which we found out was strange, you know. Um, but that's the way we were. And we started calling our kids regularly. And to this day, we have a family Zoom every Sunday afternoon. Well, it's late Sunday afternoon in Addis. And, 
and uh, we spend an hour on Zoom together, which and it's a huge gift. And um, we come home uh, every summer for six weeks, and we spend time with our kids because it's, you know, we want to have influence in our daughters' lives. But in a very interesting way, I think what we're doing is influence in our daughters' lives because, you know, what you do is, you all know this as a, who are parents, what you do is more important than what you say. I think all of us became heroes to our children's peers. Um, I mean, it's it's undoable. You had some comments about your children as well. Yeah. So um, this, echoing everything that's been said already, um, our daughter was more. Maybe she was just more dramatic, and now she expressed her displeasure with us leaving. Um, our son quietly looked at us and said, I don't want you to go. So I had that to deal with. And um, we basically told them, we've known we were going to do this, and we're doing it. We still love you. We'll be in touch. We'll find ways to communicate. Don't worry. Um, And as it turns out, our daughter has a commute a couple times a week. And she calls us, I think, every time she's in the car. And we talk to her, I would say, way more than we did when we lived in the States. And our son has started communicating on our family WhatsApp group way more than he has in the past. And they're both really looking forward to spending Thanksgiving with us. And um, our daughter came uh, once COVID was cleared just recently this summer to spend a couple weeks with us. And she, she said, well, when she first got there, she said, I'm, I'm really upset with you living all the way on the other side of the world because you won't be there when I graduate from nursing school. And, and, and you won't be there for my wedding. And you won't be even be there when I have a baby. And I said, um, there are planes. <laughs> <laughs> And I said, I, God willing, I will be there for your nursing school graduation. I will be there to help you plan your wedding. I will be there. I'm a midwife. I will catch your baby. Um, and, and then she got to see. She got to spend some time in the clinic. She got to see the need. She got to see why we're there. She got to see some really hard stories. And before she left, I said, do you understand what we're doing? She said, yes, Mom, I do. I do. So it's not been what they thought it was going to be. And I would say that being more intentional than we were when we lived in the States, we're actually communicating better with our kids now. I'm going to skip over grandparents just in the interest of time. (laughs) Um, Dave, you became a grandparent during... But uh, the rest of us, I think, are still worried. um, So Dave and Mark had some, I mean, we all, I think, had fears of, like, will my professional skills fit in a low-resource environment? Will I embarrass myself by trying to practice American medicine someplace else? Um, And will I be useful? Yeah, so your chances are your experience will not be the greatest fit for wherever you go. And that's okay. That's what I would say, because you go and you learn. And, you know, when I started in Addis, I would staff the Wednesday afternoon GI clinic in Tikaram Bessa Hospital, a room half this size, eight desks around the periphery with residents and fellows, 70 patients and their families crammed in the middle. And that was a learning experience for me because I would go from desk to desk and I resident would present the case and I'd say, well, what lab tests do we actually have that we can do? Okay. And... What, what do you think it is and why? What's common in this clinic? I mean, I was there learning, and that's fine. You're going to learn, and that's no problem with that. In fact, it's kind of fun. And then you kind of you, you, you learn what's going on. You learn from your colleagues, and it's so great because they are teaching you, and that's a beautiful thing. Huh? That's a great way to start a relationship with your co- colleagues and your peers where you go. Now, it might be different if you're all isolated somewhere on your own as the only healthcare provider, so we have to hear about that. But from what I do, it's a beautiful way to start. 
Dave, you had some comments? Yeah, the, you know, what you do on the field is very, very different. Um, we actually used to, in Malawi, even talk about when the experts came, how often we had to bail them out um, because we would have some of the – you know, I was at a pediatric orthopedic hospital, so we were seeing deformities of things I had never seen. Uh, I spent a lot of time doing pediatric orthopedics in my training, but I had not done a lot of it for years. And I was actually brought there to do more of a private practice model to, to make money for the sustainability of the hospital doing adult surgery. So I come in to do total hip surgery and total knees and reconstructive surgery with instruments and sets that were things I had not, never even seen before. Um, thank goodness I was trained in the dry ages, so I knew how to do them. Um, but I think that's actually, especially for people who are trained now, one of the real worries is for orthopedics is that people have never even seen use the technology that's probably on the ground there. So... So there's a big adjustment, and so that's something that I think you do have to be, be you know, be working on. Um, yeah, that's probably all. I had that same fear, having worked only in advanced medicine in the U.S. when I went back to Malawi. But God, in his humor in my life, um, took me and gave me an intensive course. Um, I went to Malawi for eight months to start a program and found out within a day that there were two pediatricians, 400 inpatient pediatric patients, and 400 new cases presenting every day, of which 60 were being admitted. So I saw about every disease I could expect to see um, in the next eight months, and I saw a lot of it, which is tomorrow's lecture on malaria, and we reduced mortality by 50%. Um, but it was... I was, I put and learned a lot fast, and that gave me credibility when God placed me in Burundi. That I, if I had come from the U.S., I would never have had the same credibility that I got from that intensive experience. So, uh, language. Okay. Um, does anybody here have to learn a language to work where they work? Okay. Anybody here found that easy at your age? So, um, Tim, what happened with you? So the first time in my entire um, educational career, I failed uh, my language. I failed my course in language. But I think the message for me that God really ministered to my heart is God uses weak, broken, but yet yielded vessels. And I think that's uh, the message to you guys is God can use you. Um, I now speak what I call Frenglish. My, my colleagues have learned to understand um, my, my, my language partner came from France to visit and check up on me, and he said, oh, you're learning, uh, you're doing better in your French. So anyway, I, you know, God is good and will sustain you and help you learn um, the language. <clears throat> yeah, so is there anybody here who wasn't able, isn't able to communicate now in spite of failing French, which I didn't quite fail, but close? I think... For me, the language issue has been much more of a, a reinforcement of dependency. Um, certainly, you know, as most physicians have done reasonably well with just about everything throughout life, and then to be confronted with such a significant challenge has been very grounding and keeps me very well engaged in everybody as opposed to trying to think, yeah, I can muscle through this on my own. Dave, sure. You went to an Anglophone country. What do you got Learning a new language is dementia um, prevention. prevention. <laughs> For us, I, I did go to an Anglophone country. You know, I was in Malawi. But everybody in Malawi is not everybody, but most people speak English, but people function on day-to-day -day and their heart language is in, is in Chichewa, typically. There are a lot of other languages. Wherever you go, to try to learn the, the heart language where you are makes a massive difference in how you are accepted, how you are viewed, whether you're seen as a learner or whether you're seen as kind of coming in as the expert. So... I, my wife is exceptionally gifted in languages. She was loved 
tremendously because she would come in and say, please don't speak to me in English. And, and, and folks loved that. Um, I, I learned, the nurses actually laughed at me saying, you can understand what we're saying, so we can't talk about you behind your back anymore. Um, but just the fact that we were trying you know, to learn the language meant probably more than our knowing the language. And, being, and failing at it was just as valuable as succeeding. <laughs> so. uh, again, I'm going to make the executive decision to skip a question and move on because we've got the 10-minute warning and I want some questions. Um, support raising has been an issue for almost everybody. Um, I know that if you talk to any of the people who haven't done it yet, it's like I would never want to talk to my friends about asking money. So um, it's a scary thing. It's uh, a thing that we all fear, and we hate to start the process thinking I won't get enough money, I won't get to go. Then I'll really be embarrassed having told people that I would go. But you have some comments here. Well, I can't take credit for this. We had a really great support coach through our organization, and she told us straight off that you're not asking for money. What you're doing is you're doing something really cool, and you're helping people, and people might want to partner with you. So all we did is we went and we said, look, we know God is going to fund us, but do you want to partner with us? Is what we're doing touching your heart? You can't go right now, but maybe you want to partner with us. Because they know that we have money. He's a doctor. You know, he's had a career. So we could fund ourselves. That's not the point. The point is, will they, do they feel called to partner with us? And we, we raised all of our money in six months, actually in four. So I think part of that was because we'd been going to go for so long. They were like, all right, all right. But anyway. Oh. Yeah, fundraising was the biggest shock. That was the thing I was looking forward to. I, 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 I can't raise money. Somebody was saying, you know, they have natural fundraisers for their organization. I can't raise anything. So it was a big fear of mine. And people had said that, you know, people are going to miss out, and I didn't believe them. And basically right after I thought this is, this is nonsense what they're saying, three patients that in one day came and said, are you raising support? And I said, well, I am. And they said, well, why aren't you talking about it? Why aren't you telling your patients? Because we want to be part of what you're doing. And I mean, I got chastised roundly by, you know, soundly by these patients who were who were saying that. So. Yeah, I agree with what's been said. And I would just say to you, you do not want to go self-funded. And a lot of you might be thinking, that's my model. I'm going to save up enough or come back and work here part time and go self-funded. You don't want to do that. And there's two reasons, at least two reasons, why. But one is. Come six months to a year into where you are, you're going to look out the window and say, why are we here? You know, you get there on it's like, you know, every, you love everything about the place, and six months later the honeymoon is over, and you only see what you hate about this place. And you're like, why don't I just go home? And, but if you have a team of people that is partnered with you and is connected to you, you think, I can't go home. You know, I'm accountable to these people. And the Lord works through that. You also don't want to self-fund because it's a very humbling experience to raise support, and it will force you to think of yourself as a child of God, not a skilled professional. You are a skilled professional, but that in your heart cannot be who you are. And and uh, and, and then to echo what was said, you know, you'll get some help because you don't know how to fundraise. But if you join an organization that knows about this and is is what they should be. They'll teach you. You'll get, they'll have you read a book. They'll give you some coaching and advice. You'll come to realize I'm actually doing people a favor by giving them the opportunity to partner in this. Yeah. Raising money is scary, and it turns out that as you communicate to people and more people and churches, people you don't know start sending money. They're so excited about what's going on that they want to be part of what is going on with your life. Janet and I have many Catholic supporters. We have three Hindu supporters. Yeah. Yeah. So God, God works in amazing ways. So I'm going to stop now and take your questions uh, for the panel. You can ask directly to anyone or you can make an open question and I'll just see who wants to answer. Not really a question for them, but do you those like 
Yeah, you can. Yeah, you can take the picture of the pictures. Sure. Yeah, just don't include any of the people. Not this side. That side. Take that side. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Sure. Sure. I mean, th- those are the barriers that we see recognized that hold people back at from mid-career to saying, oh, you know, I can't leave. Um, and our whole purpose in doing this is to say God is bigger than those barriers. Um, and he's got stories that not just ours, but other people that were, could have been on the panel that didn't come. It's just, yeah. Other questions out there? For, yeah. I'll let you, but I will, I will say it's the same thing for me. Um, I, I will co-opt, giving it back to you. That, um, I mean, I was the academic. I was president of an international organization in my specialty, especially boards. I did all that kind of stuff. But, um, you know, God had to say, you know, and make me see that I had trained so many people here to could do what I did that I really wasn't needed here. And I need to start thinking about you know, using what I had, even if it meant being vulnerable. And if you were at the meeting that, that this morning, you saw that I was my own secretary. Um, and I was, I became essentially nothing to be able to model and do what was being done where I went. And that was a huge change in my identity. And, and it, it made this morning sound like I was doing it overnight. I felt like every day I was losing part of myself. But in the end, I look at God doing more with me than I ever imagined. And Chris is back. Chris Lee are back there, and know how um, how I over the years became more humble. <laughs> thought I would be more than I would be. Two of my former students. So you've heard already this course mentioned named Sonship, which is put out by Surge, Randy's mission organization. So I, I had a young colleague who was planning on becoming a missionary, and he uh, interviewed with his sending agency, and they said, before you go, you've got to do this sonship thing, and you have to find someone to do it with. So they asked me, he asked me, would you do this with me? I said, sure, I'll help you out. turns out it helped me out because, because it's about this very issue. And I'll tell you some diagnostic signs of whether or not your identity is rooted too much in your profession. One is if you get angry pretty easily at work. That's a huge red flag. Number two is if you care a lot about what other people think of you and you get really depressed when you think maybe they, they don't think so much of me. That's a huge red flag. If the gospel bores you, if you go to church and you're listening, you think, you know, I've heard this part a million times. Give me something more. That's a huge red flag. Your identity is not in being a child of God. And that was all that stuff was true of me. So I learned that through this particular course, and uh, um, if I hadn't, I wouldn't be in Ethiopia now, I can tell you, because it is not as satisfying to practice there. It's just not. I mean, it's hard, and uh, you don't have all the technology, and you see people fail who would have succeeded if I was caring for them here, um, but it's, that's not what it's about anymore, and, you know, when I Many of our colleagues here said they told people about the need, and it's absolutely true. But I would also say, what I would say to people, why are you going? I'd say, well, do you want the upper story or the lower story? And the lower story to me was the need. The upper story was God call, is calling us to go. And as I'm his child. I've got to go. And um, um, I didn't have that perspective when we started looking into it. Other questions? We actually can run over, but we're. Do you have a comment? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I look at. So our, our my practice, my last practice in the states was in Aspen, um, which is beautiful. It's a wonderful place. I had a very successful practice. Met lots of interesting people, and if I wanted to name drop, I could name drop, and 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 that was all fun and interesting and in the end not really enough and as I would talk to friends and they would say what are you, what are you doing in Aspen because it, that's not who I was when I was growing up and the different places that we were um, prior to that and so I would often look at that and say yeah I don't know what we're doing here why we are in Aspen 
but now as I look backwards, it's all very, very clear um, why we were put where we were. It was making connections and gaining skills and really developing the desire and the capacity to do what we are now doing where we are. And so it makes a lot of sense. Um, and to put all of that together, um, one of my mentors from medical school um, was really talking about, well, when should you start a family? And his answer was, well, there is no good time. And so with regards to another huge commitment, like should I start to be a missionary? The answer is, yeah, go. The, any time is the good time. Um, it's never going to be perfect. So, you know, just hear those little voices that say, start moving, and uh, it all comes together. Yeah, there's one. Um, one of the one of the sayings that somebody on my team I, I still work for SIM full time um, you know now now based here in the states one of my teammates says something I think kind of gets to this identity issue and how we go you know it's been mentioned already we need to go as learners uh, we don't you know we can't we don't want to go with the idea that we're the experts um, I think that that time is and should be passed. but I love her her husband used to say to her years ago he said you know are you going holding your degrees in your hand in front of you that you want everybody to see, or are you going with your towel over your arm to serve? And and I think that's just a, I think that's a, always a great thing to sort of think, you know, why am I going? Am I going to serve and to learn, or am I going to try to impress people with all that I know and all I can do? So. Yeah, when I look back at my career, um, I. You know, and there's lots of patients I've seen over lots of years, um, but nothing gives me more joy than the 300 medical students we graduated in the six years that I was at Hope After University. Those students, who they are, and all the people that they're going to serve, make so many of my other career choices insignificant. Any other questions? Yeah, sure. Final comments or questions? Then we're at the hour. Thank you.